may be seated. Don, thank you for reading that scripture passage for us. Don is always encouraging me not to shy away from the tough topics. And so, Don, you were a natural choice to ask to read that passage this morning. That's not easy to read. Thank you for uh, reading that uh, for us. Those of you I don't know, my name is Charlie Dunn, and for the last few Sundays, we have been in a teaching series in uh, Romans chapter uh, 1 through Romans chapter 5. It's a series called Faith You Can Explain, and boy, is this a passage that needs explaining. Um, particularly in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves uh, today, um, more than any other passage in Scripture, uh, this is the passage of Scripture that probably most clearly uh, reflects God's displeasure um, towards sexual relations between people of the same gender. Um, this is probably... Um, the passage that most clearly expresses how does God feel about homosexuality. And I think that most of us, if we are uh, paying attention in our culture, we, we recognize um, why a passage like this could be perceived as, as so uh, potentially offensive, uh, maybe to somebody who uh, does not share our beliefs and our assumptions. There are many people, I think, who would hear a passage like this and they would think, um, that it comes across as, as hateful, uh, as bigoted, as homophobic. Maybe it's, it's a very reason why they would not want to consider um, Jesus or uh, the Christian faith. Some people may feel that way in our culture. Maybe to bring it a little bit closer to home, um, perhaps there are some of us even here in this um, room today, and, and maybe you have um, struggled with a sense of attraction to people of um, the same sex, and you haven't always known um, what to do with that. Maybe you felt shame uh, around that, or perhaps um, you have, have felt that it is an impossible burden, an impossible cross to carry, not to be able to experience that sense of, of love and even sexual intimacy um, with the gender to whom you are attracted. Even if that is not your particular uh, place, I know that there are those in this room today and you have people in your life whom you love, uh, people whom you uh, value and cherish, their uh, friendships, their relationships. Some of you I know have children who would identify as gay. Some of you have um, cousins or nephews or nieces and, 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 and you cherish their relationships and, and even though you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, maybe personally you're, you're struggling to, to make sense of a teaching like this and, and you think to yourself, maybe you, you've seen um, uh, loving, committed um, gay relationships and, and you, you look at that and you think, gosh, why would God care who we love? Why would God care about how we use our, our sexuality in that way? As our culture increasingly puts it, isn't love love? Why would God be concerned about who we love or have relationships with? And so I know we're, we're wrestling with those kinds of questions. And if we want to be able to explain our faith then, particularly in our cultural moment, uh, we need to be able um, to think about this uh, difficult topic together. And as Laura said, um, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I did not want to preach this sermon today. 
Uh, All week long, I have been dreading preaching on this passage. That's one of the unfortunate things about working your way through a particular um, section of of the Bible, too, is eventually I knew we were going to come to this passage, and I was going to need to preach on this. I have not looked forward to preaching on this. Frankly, I have felt somewhat tempted um, to, to actually begin to sort of go down the very sequence that Paul describes here in Romans 1. And in case you miss that sequence, Paul actually lists it three separate times in this passage. Here's the sequence. Um, he, he gives it to us verses 23 to 24, then 25 through 27, then again in verse 28 in case we missed it. Here's the sequence. He says, step one is that what we do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Instead of worshiping the God who is, what we do is we want to put ourselves in the place of God, and we look to idols, um, which are ways for us to feel like God, as we talked about last Sunday. Idols help us feel like God apart from reverence for God or dependence upon God. So that's that's the first step. And then he says the second step is that when we do that, God actually, in his just judgment, he gives us over to what we want. He gives us over to our desires. He gives us over to our idols. That's the second step. And then the third step is he says this disordered worship expresses itself in all sorts of disordered behaviors and attitudes. Paul lists 21 different behaviors and attitudes, many of which have nothing to do with our sexuality. But he particularly seems to focus on a disordered sexuality as an expression of a disordered worship. Do you see that sequence, right? Three times he repeats the same sequence. And I have to tell you, I was tempted this week to begin that that first step, which is what? Exchanging the truth for a lie. I was tempted to play my own God and to exchange the approval of God for your approval. Because often for me, that's an idol in my life. That's a way that I play God is by making sure that everybody likes me and is happy with me. I think if everybody likes me, then life is going to mostly go the way that I want it to go. If I'm in trouble, I'll have people that will bail me out. It makes me feel like an important, significant person if everybody likes me. I was so afraid of losing your approval by preaching this sermon today that maybe some of you would hear this and you would think, I don't know that that's a church that I want to be a part of. Maybe some of you would leave this, this congregation because we, we are taking on this topic. I was so tempted to want to avoid this or, or, or change or, or, or ignore or somehow kind of gloss over this passage so that I might have your approval. Now, fortunately, fortunately, God did not give me over to that desire. It's the second step. But instead, he, he gave me a wife who sometimes tells me the hard things that I need to hear. And when I was lamenting that I have to preach the sermon and I was looking for her sympathy to me, instead, what she said to me was she says, doesn't Jesus say in the Gospels that sometimes people might hate you for my sake? Because of the fact that you follow me, because of the fact that you identify with me, here's just one example in John 15. Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, if you followed all of the views and perspectives of the world, it would love you as its own. 
Jesus, uh, Jesus says this in uh, John 15. He says it in several other places in the gospel. And, and my wife reminded me that, that doesn't Jesus say, people might hate you for aligning yourself with me. And then she proceeded to remind me that she was going to be out of town this weekend. And <laughs> she said, I'm going to hang out with some college friends, so good luck with your sermon. I'll be back afterwards. And so here we are um, today. And fortunately, God has not given me over to the desire to, to change or, or, or twist his word because what I have found is as much as I love the approval of other people, God's approval matters more. And, and I have that approval already, not because I've earned it or achieved it, but as a gift of his grace, I know that I'm already loved and accepted and forgiven in Jesus. I have the approval of the person whose approval matters most. What I've found too is, is that though I know my, my wife loves me, I have found that the love that I most deeply need is not the love of another person. It is the love that we find in Jesus. That is the love that is most deeply able to satisfy the, the, the longings and the desires of our soul to truly be known and to be loved. And that's true, by the way, whether you're attracted to people of the same sex or a different sex. And I have found that as I'm willing to accept sometimes hard instruction from Jesus to take him at his word and to put my life in surrendered obedience to him, what I have found is that it leads to greater life and flourishing, just as Jesus promised that it would. And so I want to walk through this difficult passage together this morning. And I want to do that in this way. I want to walk through that sequence that we already described, this progression, which is really our problem, these three sort of downward steps that are our problem. And then I want to look at our solution, the solution that we try, and then the solution that God provides. So let's walk through this passage together. And so first, the problem. The first step in that problem, as we've already said, is that we have a God complex. We talked about this last Sunday. We looked at the first half of this passage last Sunday. We said that all of us innately, as Paul says, all of us know that there is a God. We all innately know that we were created, that there's a God upon whom we depend for our existence, a God to whom we are accountable. But what Paul says we do is we push that knowledge down. We suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. Why? Because we'd prefer to be our own God. We'd prefer to run our own lives instead of having to be under his control. Remember, this was the original temptation. If you go back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, what does Satan say to Adam and Eve? He says, if you eat of that fruit, you can be like God. Right? You can determine what is good and what is evil for yourself. You can decide what is right and wrong for yourself. You can be your own God. That's the fundamental temptation to every single sin. And all of us, we have this God complex. And we said the way that expresses itself is that we turn to these created things called idols. And what an idol is, is an idol is something that helps us to feel like God apart from having to be dependent upon God or express reverence for God. And so that's, that's the first step in this sequence. We all have a God complex. Now, how does that relate particularly to gender and sexuality? 
um, in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves today. I think it maybe would be helpful for us to see how this God complex plays into a lot of the rapid changes that we're seeing as it relates to gender and sexuality in our culture right now. So um, let's take ourselves back about 11 years. Any Lady Gaga fans here today? Come on, Lady Gaga is incredibly talented as a singer and an entertainer. If you've seen that movie, A Star is Born, I mean, the soundtrack for that movie is so good. She's very talented, and back in 2011, she released a song called Born This Way. Anybody heard that before? So I'll throw the lyrics for that up on the, the slide. Let me, let me give you some lyrics from this, this song. She says, a different lover is not a sin. A different lover is not a sin. No matter gay, straight, bi, lesbian, transgender, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. She says, I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. Now, let's, let's think about the logic of what she's singing in these lyrics. Essentially, what Lady Gaga is, is saying is what a lot of um, advocates uh, for um, cultural acceptance of homosexuality over the last 40 years have been saying. Listen to this, this logic. She says, don't question who I love or how I use my sexuality. Why? Here's her answer. Because God made me this way. I'm being true to who I was made to be. And again, that's been the logic for a lot of, of, of the advocacy around acceptance of homosexuality. By the way, as Christians, should we deeply oppose and lament any hate, any violence, any abuse that has been expressed toward people who identify as gay? Absolutely. Are we called to love every single person just as Jesus would call us to love? Without a doubt. But if you think about the logic over the last 40 years, it's pretty consistent with what Lady Gaga is saying. She saying, don't question who I love or how I use my sexuality. Why? Because God made me this way, right? She's saying, look inside yourself, discover who you were made to be and live consistently with that, whether that is gay or straight or bi or whatever that might be. Everybody tracking so far? Can I tell you that Lady Gaga is out of date? She's like, she's, she's already that line of logic is already out of date. This is how rapidly thinking around um, sexuality and gender is changing in our society today. There are actually some advocates in the LGBTQ plus movement today who would look at these lyrics and say, actually, that's wrong. That's oppressive. That's an oppressive way to think about sexuality and gender. Here's why. Because there's a, there's a new logic. It's actually a more consistent logic that's beginning to emerge in our society today. And, and, it, and it looks like this. People increasingly in our society would say, don't question who I love or how I use my sexuality. Why? Because there's no God at all who made me. Right? Increasingly, our culture is kind of rejecting the idea of, of belief in God. There's no God who made me, which means what? If there's no God who made me, that means I get to make myself. I get to create myself. I can choose to be whoever I want to be. So if I, if I want to identify with one gender, I can. If I want to identify with a different gender, I can. If I want to be attracted to this uh, sex at one point, I can. If I want to be attracted to a different sex, I can. You're actually seeing a lot more fluidity 
Um, in, 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 in the way that, that gender and sexuality is expressing itself now, you're seeing a lot of people who previously identified as gay um, in, in different polls saying they also have attraction to people of the opposite sex. It's far more complex. It's far more fluid, and it's actually far more consistent. Far more consistent. It's a consistent expression of the God complex. Because if we say there's no God who made me, then, then, then I can be whatever I want to be. I can choose whatever I want to choose. I can use my gender or sexuality however I want to express it. Now, how do we respond in a culture like that? With, with the teaching that we have received and have heard from, from not only Paul, but Jesus and the scriptures, how do you respond when, when people ask you the question, and maybe you've had this question if you've been in a conversation with somebody before who doesn't share your beliefs, you know, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Or, or what, what, what do Christians believe about homosexuality? Have you ever had that question before? I've had that question actually as, as a pastor here uh, in this church. Sometimes people visit and they, they love our church and they, they commit and they join just like they did last Sunday and we, we praise God uh, for that. But sometimes people come and they say, let's go grab coffee. And one of the questions they'll ask me is, is tell me, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And what they're, they're wanting to know is, is this a church that I want to be a part of or not, sort of based on that, that, that question, that test. And when people ask me that question, do, do you know how I respond? Do you, do you know how I would suggest that you respond? I, I, I respond by saying, I think that's a, a good question. I think it's an important question, but I don't think it's the first question. I don't think it's a primary question. I think it's a secondary question. Here's, here's what I mean by that. I think the primary question for every single person to answer is first, do you believe that there's a God? And, and as Christians, we believe that, that, that Jesus actually claims to be God, doesn't he? Jesus claims to be our creator of all people. He claims to be the judge of all people. Jesus claims that he is the one through whom we can be redeemed and rescued and saved. Jesus claims to be God. So you need to start there. That's the first question, is do you believe him? Do you think that Jesus really is who he claims to be? And, and if he is, then the secondary question is, okay, what does Jesus say about how he wants me to use my sexuality? But if he's not, then who the heck cares what Jesus says? Who cares what his disciples say about how to use your sexuality? But that's the primary question. You've got to start there. What do I believe about Jesus' claim? Is he my creator? Because look, if Jesus is your creator, you can't come to Jesus with your agenda and expect him to have to line up with it. No, you come to Jesus and say, okay, what's your agenda and how do I line myself up with it? Because you're the creator. Right? You are the judge. You are the redeemer. And I think what you'll find if you look at the life of Jesus, and you look at the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, you're going to notice this, this, this sort of strange paradox to Jesus' teaching. On the one hand, you're going to find um, that Jesus is, is pretty traditional. He's pretty conservative. He's, he's pretty restrictive. He's pretty defined in the way that he talks about how we're supposed to express our sexuality. Jesus in a culture that I'm going to suggest to you is actually more sexually permissive, had more sexual options than is the case even in our culture today. 
Jesus reaffirms that God's design for sexuality is that he, he made it to be expressed between a man and a woman in the context of a whole life commitment of a marriage, a one flesh union, what God has joined together, Jesus says, let God, let no man separate. And, and actually Jesus in his teaching about sexuality, he, he ratchets it up to another level. None of us get away um, unconvicted. It doesn't matter if you're attracted to people of the same sex or different sex. All of us are convicted by what Jesus teaches about sexuality because Jesus actually says, if you've ever lusted after another person in your heart, in your imagination, he says you are guilty of committing adultery with them. Right, so Jesus, on the one hand, actually has a pretty strict, pretty um, uh, set, traditional view of sexuality. And yet, did you know it was the religious people in Jesus' day, the judgmental religious people who were always most scandalized by the way in which Jesus was befriending and loving and welcoming people with a sexual past, people who the culture would view as sexually immoral? Jesus was always loving them, always welcoming them into relationship with him. Jesus was very glad to extend God's forgiveness and his grace to anybody who was willing to admit that they were sexually broken, to confess their sin and the fact that they needed forgiveness and salvation. Jesus was inviting anyone and everyone to come and follow him. And did you know that some of the earliest followers of Jesus in the early church were recovering homosexuals? We're told that in 1 Corinthians that uh, Paul lists a number of, of, of different ways that people were, were living outside of God's design. And he says, some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were, were, were living out those same-sex desires before you became a follower of Jesus. And there were a number of, of early Christians who helped start and found the church who discovered this freedom and forgiveness and life and love in Jesus to where they were willing to surrender those sexual desires in a, in a, in a greater desire um, to live in obedience to Jesus because of the fulfillment that they had found in him and in his love for them. And there are a number of Christians who continue to walk that very same path today. They live a life of celibate singleness as they seek to follow Jesus. That was true, by the way, of Jesus himself. That was true of Paul. They recognized you don't need sexual intimacy with another person to live a fulfilled life. You need a life with Jesus. And so that's, that's, that's how I think we, we understand this. That's how we respond. But Paul says, and we recognize, there are a number of people who, who don't acknowledge, who don't recognize that Jesus is God. A number of us, sometimes, we suppress that truth ourselves. And so he says the second step in the sequence is it starts with the God complex, and then it moves into um, what Paul says is God giving us over to our desires. It's the second part of the problem. Did you notice three times Paul says, um, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lust. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gives us over. Uh, last Sunday, some of you were concerned about that very first phrase in verse 18, where Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed 
from heaven against all godlessness. And some of you asked the question, you were like, what does it mean when it says the wrath of God? I don't like to think of God as, as wrathful. You know, you think of a God who's having a temper tantrum, who's flying off the handle, who can't control his anger. That's how we think about wrath. But in the Bible, God's wrath is not fly off the handle anger. It's measured, it's patient, and it's just. And what Paul says is God's just judgment for our God complex, for the way that we worship and serve other things besides God, is that God actually gives us what we want. He gives us over to our desires, uh, Paul says. Um, One way to think about this, C.S. Lewis once said, the doors of hell are locked, but they're locked from the inside, not from the outside. We don't want God. We don't want to acknowledge him. We don't want to worship him. We want to worship ourselves and other things, and God gives us over to what we want. George MacDonald put it this way. He said at the end of history, there are going to only be two kinds of people in the world. There will be people who, having been redeemed and rescued by the grace of God in Jesus, will say at the end of history, gladly, God, thy will be done. And there are going to be those to whom God sadly says, thy will be done. He gives us over to what we want. But you see, that is judgment. And that is misery. Because we were created not to worship ourselves. We weren't created to worship ourselves. We weren't created to worship other things. We were created to worship the one true God. That's how we were made to flourish. If you go to your doctor and your doctor says you've got high cholesterol and you say, that's great, I'm gonna go keep eating cheeseburgers and fries and whatever else I want to continue eating, you're going to experience The effects of that, right? It's going to have negative consequences for your body. The same is true for us. We were not made to live off of worshiping ourselves or other things. So when God gives us over to that, it leads to misery. It is a form of judgment. Uh, Becky Pippert, in her book, Stay Salt, which we're going to start that book study on Wednesday, uh, Becky Pippert tells a story about a man, a friend that, that she had made. He was her hairdresser, a guy by the name of, of Theo. And, and, and Theo was in a, um, a gay relationship, and, and she came in one day to get her hair cut, and she noticed that Theo was, was looking down. And, and she said to him, she said, Theo, is everything okay? Um, you seem a little low. And, and Theo said, Becky, thank you for asking. You're the, you're the only person who has actually noticed today. Um, yes, I am very depressed. And she said, well, tell me why. And, and he said, well, I'm really depressed because my, my partner of, of several years, a guy that, that I really admired, that I really loved, I'm actually, you know, he's got flaws, but, but, but I worshipped this guy. He was my everything. He, he left me. He broke up with me. He's gone. He said, I'm devastated because of that. And he said to her, he knew that Becky was a Christian. He said, Becky, do you, do you think the reason why... I'm so miserable. Do you think this relationship was just doomed to fail as a Christian because it was, it was a same-sex relationship? And you know what Becky said to him, I love this response. She said, you know, that's, that's a separate question. She said, but can I tell you, I actually think it's a deeper issue than sexuality. And she said, you know, I've got another friend who was just in a heterosexual relationship and her boyfriend broke up with her and she is just as devastated as you are. She said, I think the deeper issue then sexuality is a worship issue. Deeper issue is that we were not made to find our life and fulfillment and ultimate joy in a relationship with another person. 
When we worship a person, when we put them in that place, we put a pressure and an expectation on them that they're never going to be able to meet because we were made for the worship of God. And when that person, then should they leave us or should we lose them? Should something happen to them? It's not just that we're going to be sad. We're going to be absolutely devastated because we weren't made to worship somebody else. We weren't made for another person to fulfill us. Only God is able to do that. And of course, then, that leads to misery when we exchange the worship of God for the worship of other things, not just relationships, Augustine put it this way. He said, sin is the punishment for sin. We talked about that if you were here during our series on the seven deadly sins during the season of Lent. You know, some of the other things that Paul lists in this passage, it's not just sexuality. You know, he lists a number of different uh, behaviors and attitudes of which all of us uh, are, are guilty. But if you think about them, right, greed, greed promises a sense of, of security, but, but, but it always steals our contentment. You know, you think about, about pride. Pride is, is, is something that, that, that promises a sense of self-significance, but actually it leaves us feeling more anxious and insecure. Uh, anger promises a sense of control. But if you hold on to anger, right, that bitterness is going to eat you alive from the inside. Sin is the punishment for sin. And when we try to put these other things in the place of God, they lead to misery. And that is God's just judgment for that sin. He gives us over to what we want. And Paul says that expresses itself, that disordered worship leads to all sorts of disordered attitudes, and behaviors. 21 different things that he lists, right? But he does seem to really focus on homosexuality, doesn't he? He, he makes that kind of a primary example of disordered worship expressing itself in disordered sexuality. Why does he do that? It's kind of the, kind of the third step in this sequence that I want to I address that. I want to speak to that. Is, is Paul a self-righteous judgmental homophobe? Is that why he, he writes in this way? I don't think so. Because, you know, you read the rest of Paul's writings. One of the things that Paul says about himself in, in 1 Timothy, he says, I am the worst of sinners. Paul knew that, that he had been somebody who, who, who murdered, who persecuted. He says, I'm a, I'm a blasphemer. I'm guilty of, of mistreating and hurting people who are followers of Jesus. Paul knew very well that he had no room to stand in superior judgment over somebody else just because their sin or their issue might be different from his. But I think the reason why Paul seems to, to focus on and to highlight uh, same-sex relationship as an example of a disordered behavior that is reflective of a deeper disordered worship is this. Let me, let me try to explain um, why as Christians do we really believe that, that sex is for a man and a woman in the context of marriage? And, and the answer to that, um, some of you leaned into uh, this summer when you read a book called Delighting in the Trinity. If you read that book, Delighting in the Trinity, you might remember that, that what the author says is, as Christians, we, we believe that God is Trinity, meaning that God is not just a singular person. At his very essence, God is community. 
these three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutually loving, mutually self-giving relationship, but perfectly united together. Three distinct persons united together. Now, when this Trinitarian God decided to create people, Genesis 1 says this. It says, God says in, in verse 26 of Genesis 1, let us... Let us, do you notice that kind of plural language there? Um, let us create man in our image. And then we're told male and female, he created them. Right? These two distinct genders. And, and there's a sense then in which God is not fully pictured if you don't have both genders. Right? You need both men and women to have a full image, a full picture of who this God is. It's part of the reason why, as a church, we affirm that God calls both men and women into leadership. We need both voices in leadership because while men and women are equal, they're not the same. They're distinct. They're different. They image God in slightly different ways. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we're told this, this design that, that, that a man should leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two should become one flesh. What is that? Friends, that's a reflection of the very nature of God. That's a reflection of who this God is, these three distinct persons. There's diversity, but there's also this perfect unity. It's the same in God's design for marriage and God's design for sex. You've got two distinct genders that are brought together in this one flesh union. Now, that one flesh union, yes, it does reflect the joy and the, and the life that is found in the, the Trinitarian life of God, but it also is only a foretaste of that joy. That, that sexual union is only a foretaste of that joy that every Christian, whether you are married or not, that one day every Christian will experience in perfect union with God through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. When, when, we, when we miss that, either, either by um, having relationships that are not truly united, when we express our sexuality without that one flesh life committed union in the context of marriage or in relationships where there isn't the diversity. In a same-sex sexual relationship, um, sex ceases to be that reflection. It ceases to be that mirror of who God is, which it was made to be, diversity and unity. And so that's what we believe as Christians. Maybe you accept that, maybe you don't. Um, but, but it's important, I think, for us to be able to explain. And so, so there's, there's the problem, right, that Paul walks through God complex, God gives us over to our sin that leads to all sorts of disordered behaviors and attitudes because of a disordered worship. What's the solution? What's the solution to this problem? Well, there's a solution that we try. What's the solution that we try? We redefine sin. We redefine what is good and what is wrong. You look at verse 32, here's what Paul says. He says, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, why do we try so hard often to justify our sin, to rationalize our sin, to excuse our sin, right? It wasn't gossip, as Paul lists as one example. I just felt like you needed to know. Right? It's not that I'm being boastful or arrogant. I just think it's important to have you know, good self-esteem. 
as a woman told me on Friday, kind of an elderly woman talking about a, an issue with her daughter, she said, well, it's not that I'm, I'm lying to her. It's just I know I've got to tell her certain sort of stories if she's going to be willing to listen to what I want her to hear. Why, why do we excuse and rationalize and justify our sin? Why is it so important that, that others approve of what we do or that we approve of what they do? Have you noticed how adamantly when it comes to sexuality and gender, our culture doesn't just want to say, hey, let me do what I want to do, but you have to accept it. You have to approve of it. You, you can't say that it's, it's wrong. Why? Because that's our effort to try to silence that voice of conscience. That's our effort to, to try to, 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 to get rid of that feeling of guilt. That's our solution to the problem that we try. It doesn't work. You, you ultimately can't get rid of that, that voice, that conscience, that guilt inside where we recognize that none of us are the person that we're supposed to be. We are all deeply flawed. We are all deeply self-interested. We know that none of us could stand before the judgment seat of God. That's the solution we try. But the great news is that there is also another solution. It's the solution that God provides. And he has provided for us in Jesus. Just two chapters later, we'll get to this soon in our series. Paul writes this. Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We do not have to try to justify ourselves by rationalizing our sin because we can be justified. We can be made right before God through what Jesus has already done for us. We can own and acknowledge our sin because now through Jesus, God looks at us as spotless and righteous in his sight when we trust in him. That is a righteousness you don't achieve. It's a righteousness that we receive by grace. And yes, Paul says in this passage that God's just judgment is to give us over to our sin, to give us over to our idols. But you know, Paul also says in Romans chapter 8, that God gave Jesus over to death for us. Jesus, we're told in, in Ephesians 5, gave himself over to death for us. And listen, friends, the more that you trust and the more that you believe, the more that you see this God being willing to give himself over to death for you, to go to a cross and to suffer and to die, to experience all of the misery and just judgment that our sin deserves, to take that into himself and upon himself, the more that you see Jesus doing that for you, giving himself over for you, you're not gonna be as inclined to wanna give yourself over to your idols, to wanna give yourself over to your desires. But instead, more and more, you're going to find your heart desiring to want to give yourself to the God who gave himself for you. And that's hard. That's a struggle for each of us in, in various and, and different ways. But, but this Jesus, when he gives us commands, particularly as it relates to our sexuality, he does not give them to us to oppress us, but to bless us. 
and to lead us into greater freedom and flourishing and life with him. And we trust that because we see his love and his self-giving goodness for us. And we see that so clearly at the Lord's table. And so let's pray as we come to the Lord's table together. Oh, Lord Jesus, these are hard things for us to hear, hard things to receive, sometimes even harder to express and to explain. But Jesus, we know that, that, that the opinions and the views of the culture around us have changed and they will continue to change. but that your word is consistent and it's true. And where that's hard for us to accept and to believe, we pray that you would um, help us to trust you, especially as we see your self-giving love for us. The fact that Jesus, you were willing to give your body and to give your blood for us. You came that we might have life and have it abundantly in you. Help us to trust that and to believe that, even where it means surrendering our desires to you, and even where it means that we may not receive the approval and the acceptance of others, because we have the approval and the acceptance that matters most, that is found in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.